Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Welcome to the J podcast. I am your host, Jahans Maniga, a.k.a. Canadian Rebel. Make sure to like and subscribe to the Field of 68 Media Network to keep following along with all the good stuff that we have going on. Whether or not the college basketball season is up, that doesn't mean that our content is. Uh, and we'll be continuing to give you guys some great content for these upcoming weeks. Today, we have a very special guest on the Welcome to the J podcast. He's actually our 17th guest. He is a broadcaster of college basketball on Fox. He is a Big East basketball connoisseur. He's an associate of ours at the Field of 68 Media Network, and he's probably one of the busiest broadcasters you'll see around the nation. John Fanta is here with us. Welcome to the J, John. <laughs> Wow, what an introduction, John Anaga, a Creighton great. Uh, I got to tell you, man, it's, it's terrific to join you. And what you've done with this pod has been a, a ton of fun. So when Tyler, your fearless producer, asked me about this, uh, I didn't hesitate. I, I just let it fly, my man. It's great to be with you on this pod. And uh, I'm very happy to be on the J and to be guest number 17. It's an honor. I'm assuming this is the first time anyone's asked you to come to the J. Do you know what the J is? Do you have any kind of uh, idea of what this podcast is kind of all about? Well, I hope it involves some three-point shooting because, believe it or not, <laughs> I I do have a jumper. Um, yeah. <laughs> you might not think that, but, but I do. I've got footage as evidence that I do. Uh, but mm-hmm. tell me a little bit. That that would be my my first inkling. I think of three-point shooting, and I think of culture because that's what Creighton basketball is always is in my mind. What is the J? The J is actually this little bar that you see behind me. Uh, it used to be our little uh, bar that we used to go to. It was right next to campus. It got torn down a couple of years back, so the name of this podcast is actually kind of a, a, a nod to that where, you know, obviously a lot of Creighton fans, if you know anything about Creighton basketball, you know about the Jays, where you go after games to you know, get beers, talk about what you just saw on the floor and all that stuff. So the fans know it, and now obviously you know it. So when I say welcome to the Jays, it's really welcoming you to this little underground bar that we used to have before after games, and we could just kind of talk about, you know, the game that we just saw. <laughs> I feel like after a run to the Sweet 16, mm-hmm. that either the J needs to get resurrected or there needs to be a new bar there's got to be a new underground bar. I'm going to put in for it. I think Steve <laughs> Lavin would pay for it too. I think Lab would pay for it. I, I'm all in on kind of resurrecting a bar here. This has got to happen because Creighton fans deserve several beers. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. You know what? Lavin would probably put the dump in. <laughs> he probably put a, put he a mortgage. He'd pay for it. Oh, yeah. He'd start a tab. There'd be a running Steve Lavin tab just – just to have all the dollar beers in the world. I'm all in for that. I'm all in for that. I, I love I love going to Omaha. I love taking a trip out there. I actually really enjoy going to varsity. Those breadsticks are addicting. Yeah. No, Omaha is such a I, I call it like the most low-key best city in America. Um, I always say unbiased opinion, but everybody knows they're very biased. But Omaha, if you guys ever have a chance to go down there for the guys who, who are listening, who may be, have never stepped foot into Omaha, I'm telling you, you're in for a neat surprise. It's a really beautiful city. Very nice uh, people. Like you feel right at home as soon as you step foot in Omaha. So no, 100%. Next time you come back to town, did, did you have a chance to travel and do any games in Omaha this year? I know the COVID season kind of, you know, halts a lot of that stuff. So did you have a chance to get to Omaha this year? Did not make it out to Omaha this year. Know that it's at the top of my list heading into next season. I love taking a trip out there, whether it's the the Hilton right across the street. Uh, Coach Mack holds court there, especially after wins. Yeah. Uh, a trip to Spencer's or a trip to the Drover. Uh, I love going to the radio. Best steak. Breakfast. Best steak ever. Drover. Is it, is it Lisa's for breakfast? Lisa's radio. Lisa's cafe? radio. Yeah, Lisa's yeah, radio. I'm not sure. Nobody called me on this, but I think Lisa's might have gone under. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's devastating. I also haven't been in Omaha since COVID started, so I'll have to check back with you on that one. But that, that would be a tragedy if Lisa's went under. Oh, my God. It's so good. I, I have had yeah. so many great mornings there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, they'd have a newspaper out, and the biscuits were to die for. Yeah, I really uh, – that I, we got to figure that out, too. We, we got to resurrect the JN Lisa's. We're just uh, – we're making, we're making our agenda. And then a trip to the casino never hurt anybody. <laughs> a little Harris action, for sure, right across the uh, bridge. Yeah. <laughs> I, once, oh. I once was sitting next to a cowboy who bet $1,000 on a hand of blackjack at Harris. 
And what was the result? Yeah, it didn't end well. Didn't end well. Oh god. It, it ended about not. it ended about as well as Villanova's visit to Creighton this past year ended for the Wildcats. I, I love it. Let's talk about it because the Jays, in my opinion, had probably the best year in uh, school history when you look at how far they went to the NCAA tournament. When you are in a program, you know, that is as prestigious as the Korean University program is, I know we want to win regular season championships. I know we want to win uh, Big East tournament championships, but advancing in the tournament is really what the end goal is all about and what we really need to start uh, judging our success off of. So in your opinion, this is a question that I'm going to start asking, you know, the guests of the pod uh, from here on out, because this is our first podcast since the game, the Jays got eliminated from the tournament. Do you think the Jays overachieved, underachieved, or did just about as well as you thought that they would uh, when you first, you know, started scouting them from the regular or before the regular season started? Well, the answer changes as the season goes on, right? You know, a college basketball season has its peaks and valleys. But as you asked me in October what my expectation for Creighton was, it was to make the Big East Championship game, have a chance in that game, and then to make a run to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. And Creighton did both those things. So for me, they met my expectation, John Hens. But I think that the other thing is they have not met those expectations as much in recent years. Last year's kind of undefined, the the 2019-20 season with COVID-19. We don't know how that would have finished. But in years before, I think of that first-round loss to Kansas State in which Marcus Foster was shut down. I remember just thinking, man, that's disappointing. They they could have won this game, and then they would have ended up facing UMBC for a chance to make the Sweet 16. For me, it's a huge step because you had expectations. When you have elevated expectations, it's hard as a program to take that next step because – it's human nature. A player says they don't pay attention. There's too much media. There's too much stuff out there for them to not pay attention to what people expected. And what I liked about Mitch Ballock and Marcus Zagorowski in the preseason was they acknowledged the fact that this is what they were at Creighton to do, to take this program on an NCAA tournament run. So going into the season, my thought was make the second weekend. They met my expectation in that regard. I can tell you, though, as the month of February got deeper, my expectations shifted towards, man, I, I hope they can win a tournament game. It right. They're going to make the second weekend. But what does that say about the NCAA tournament? An Ohio State fan went in thinking, we could make the Final Four. My expectation is to make the Elite Eight. An Illinois mm-hmm. fan went in saying, my expectation is to win the national championship. And both those schools were out the first weekend. It shows the randomness of the tournament. I think it's hard in this sport because as much as you want to judge everything on what you do in the NCAA tournament, it is draw dependent. That's how it is. It's not the best way to figure out who the best team is. Although this year we had two, two great teams, but it is the best way to have a lot of fun. And it's a tremendous postseason for me. Creighton met my preseason expectations and because they haven't done that as much in the past, that's why it was a huge step. They took on the challenge and they succeeded in taking it on. From what I've been seeing online with, you know, the conversations that the fans have been having, obviously on Twitter and on, on social media, I feel like a lot of fans kind of felt like they a little bit underachieved. And it goes to what you were saying about, you know, February going through a little bit of a, a little bit of a slide there where they didn't look like the world beaters that they did mid to late January when, you know, they beat St. John's handily at home without Marcus Zagorowski. They beat Villanova with Marcus. And then, you know, things kind of just kind of took a no- nosedive there for a little bit. I think they lost like two or three games in a row. Very questionable games that they, you know, in my opinion, should not have lost. But I guess, again, I am a very biased. <laughs> it's a very biased opinion when you're going to hear it coming out of my mouth because obviously I play for the program. Uh, I know the coaching staff. I know those players so well. I come back every summer and I train and I work out with them. So, uh, a lot of people are saying that they felt like they underachieved, but people have to remember, this is the first time since that, since the NCAA changed names, the NCAA tournament, uh, that Crane makes it to the Sweet 16. And when you think about it from that perspective, you know, things are only kind of looking up from here, uh, in a sense, because this is the kind of step that you have to take in order to, you know, build a program to the extent that we see Gonzaga's program is, uh, you know, about, as an example. If you ask Mark Few a decade ago uh, if making it to the Sweet 16 was a big deal, he would tell you absolutely. 
but you've seen that because they've consistently done that now that the expectations are higher and higher and higher. And I think that's the second time in the last, um, what, three, four years that they've made it to the NCAA tournament uh, championship game. So I think this is just kind of one of those tra trajectories that the Crane uh, program is at. And I just kind of hope to see it continue to evolve over time. Sometimes the first step is the hardest to take. And I think mm -hmm. in this case, that's, that's the scenario for Creighton basketball. Because I was saying to myself heading into this season, if not now, then when? You've got oh. an All-American caliber guard in Zagorowski. You've got a senior in Mitch Ballock, who's an extension of Greg McDermott on the floor. You have two just flat-out dogs in Damian Jefferson and Denzel Mahoney, guys that embody mm -hmm. toughness and get after it and get in your shirt and make you work for what you're going to get offensively. And that was the difference for me, Johans. The last two seasons for Creighton, they showed me a toughness and an edge that we've been mm -hmm. kind of waiting for from this program. And that's what I thought was unleashed from this team. And it starts with Mahoney and Jefferson. You know what moment changed my perception of Creighton? I'm going I'm to tell you exactly the one. I'm covering Creighton and Seton Hall. This is now two years ago mm -hmm. at the Prudential Center. And if you remember this game a little bit, Creighton was three games back of first for the Big East. Creighton basically needed to win to keep any hopes alive of the Big East title. We know what happened. They ended up winning that game at the Prudential Center. They went on a huge surge, mm -hmm. and they ended up sharing the Big East title and having that amazing scene and sweeping Seton Hall. In Creighton's mind, you know, they, they've won the Big East championship, and, and they had. They had. I mean, it was yeah. an amazing moment for the program. But you know what it was? They went to Seton Hall that night. Seton Hall played well. I think the final score was like 89-85. Seton Hall played a good game. Creighton played better than them. And for me, that was a turning moment for me over the last two years because it was the first time that I thought to myself, hmm, a team kept punching. And Creighton said, we are going to be tougher than you. We are going to get the stop when we need to. We're going to make it to a 50-50 ball. And we've got the kids to finish. And if you think about this program's arc, three or four years ago, remember the issue with this team? They could not close out games. They were young. Right. They could never hang on to a lead. They struggled late in the game. You just couldn't trust them down the stretch. They showed their evolution. And you truly show it. In sports, we get into this world, we define success by what you do in the biggest game. And the biggest games happen to come on the big dance floor. Is that always fair for an 18 to 22-year-old kid? Of course not. But life's not fair. That's how it is. You got to fight it. And I thought Creighton met the fight. And I give those kids a lot of credit. They went through a lot in the month of February. It could have been easy for them to close up. They didn't close up. They met the fight. And they found a way to get to that second weekend. And that's why, for me, it's the first big step. Look at what Gonzaga's done. They've been to six straight Sweet 16s. Their fan base now has it in their heads. As a foregone conclusion, they're going to make the Sweet 16. People don't understand. There's 353 teams in the country. It's very difficult to be the top 16. Yeah, yeah. they can still There's, be standing. Yeah, You're a very, very small percentage of teams that are left on the dance floor so that's why for me for Creighton this is a huge step they can continue to make runs they've got the recruiting they've got the culture they've got the leader in Greg McDermott I have no doubts that they're going to continue to win it's why they've been such a big addition to the Big East because you can count on them to make the NCAA tournament you just mentioned the culture, and that's something I definitely wanted to talk about because no one embodies the Korean culture more than Mitch Ballack, and you just mentioned yeah. them once or twice as you were, you know, talking about the arc uh, of, you know, Korean and the trajectory that is heading towards. Uh, what about Mitch specifically has impressed you? Obviously, you've covered him for the four years that he's been on campus. Uh, I'm assuming that he's going to be on to, you know, greener pastures after this year. Uh, but what has impressed you specifically about not only obviously the player that he is on the floor, but the person that he is off the floor, the leadership that he provides, and what he means to you know people like myself, a, a fellow Creightonian, and all the Crane fans out there? He's got a cool hand Luke mentality. He's really calm, cool, and collected. <laughs> Yet, Mitch Ballock has a great knack for knowing his teammates and knowing what he can say 
and cannot say to each one of them, knowing when he needs to get on them and when he doesn't. That's why he would make a great coach. He's got a playing career ahead of him, but he's got a coaching one after that, in my opinion. He's a great teacher. And I think as a person, John Hens, you got to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk on the court or in practice. You've got to walk the walk outside those practice doors. Mitch does it. He is everything that Creighton University stands for. He's a kid that wears a smile. He thinks optimistically. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He's open to conversation. He'll talk with you. He'll listen. I, I've had a couple of conversations with him over the course of his four years, and I've been so impressed by his demeanor. You know, he's a regular guy. And when you have a player who knows what the moment calls for continually, knows what to say, when to say it, that's what, that's what a program is about. You know, it didn't matter how many points Mitch scored. It really, and, and we're in a, a world where everybody looks at a box score and everybody wants to see how many did Zegarowski go for? What did Jefferson do today? What did Mahoney shoot today? Mitch Ballock was someone who could have a, a burst for this Creighton team. He could have taken far more shots than he even did throughout his career, but he sacrificed certain things for the greater good of the team. He's an old school player in that regard. He's an old soul, but he really made Creighton find new success. We adopted a term for Mitch Ballock because of how far away uh, defenses have to really stretch out to defend him. Uh, Avery Dingman, a former player of ours and, and a uh, alumni of the show as well, used to uh, called it. They have to hold his hand when he's on the opposite end of the floor because they literally can't, you know, uh, let go of him for a second, or else he'll he'll hit a dagger three at any given point. Sure. Uh, the spacing that he provided on court, he did everything for guys like DJ and and Denzel to be able to go downhill and, you know, give themselves opportunities at the rim, if not continue to keep the ball movement on, on the perimeter and attack in many different ways. So the gravity that he just exhibits on the floor is, is incredible. And like, for me personally, it's something that I, I've, I've seen before having played alongside Ethan Roggy and, and Doug McDermott. I, I've seen it before, but for some reason, I felt like Mitch just did it in a totally different way where like it would Crane was really playing four on four and a half court sometimes because of how far, you know, teams have to stretch out just to defend them. Big time. I mean, you had to have a body on him and even that wasn't enough. You know, you, you, you could try. I remember the game at Providence this past year, he hit a shot from the prior logo. And if I'm at right. I say, I don't know what to do. <laughs> legitimately nothing you could do. He brought that Steph Curry NBA flavor, Clay Thompson like flavor to college basketball. I and mean, what's amazing about Ballock is he mixed the ever flowing green light that Creighton basketball is all about while also making the right play. Like mm -hmm. Mitch Ballock never made a play that, that made me say wasn't the right play. And Johns, that's one of the few guys that could take a shot from close to half court. And I would sit there and say, yeah, that's the right shot. That's yeah, probably going in. Yeah. There's no bad shot for Mitch Ballard. Yeah. No, no it's, it's incredible, man. I've, I've been so impressed with him. Obviously, I've seen his growth over the last couple of years and stuff like that. I'm so happy that he got to go out, you know, as a member of the first ever C16 men's basketball team. Like, that, that's something that, you know, he'll forever be able to hang his hat on. And, you know, no one can take that away from him. No one can take that away from this team. You mentioned last year's team who won a share of the Big East uh, regular se uh, season championship, as well as or alongside Seton Hall and Villanova, I should say. Uh, that is always the biggest question mark for me. That team, particularly, if COVID didn't happen, and, you know, let's not forget that Marcus Zagorowski actually got hurt in that season finale game against Seton Hall at home. So we're not too sure, you know, what his availability, availability would have been the following week at the Big East uh, tournament and also in the NCAA tournament. But in your opinion, in a hypothetical non-COVID world, how far do you think that particular team would have taken the Jays? Well, if Zagorowski doesn't get hurt, you know, that's a team that could very well make the second weekend as well. I mean, even the mm -hmm. Elite Eights, I just thought that they were clicking on every cylinder at that point in the season. Mm -hmm. They just, they had everything going. And I, I thought that Denzel Mahoney was playing even better heading into that Big East tournament in March Madness than he was playing this season. Well, I thought he was struggling to find his jump shot. It's just, you know, just my thought process with him. I thought Jefferson as well was playing at such a high level. And when you have guys that are thinking about maybe testing the draft waters, like those two players were, 
what happens is it causes you, I think, to just switch to another gear and play so, so hard. Not that they weren't this year, not that they weren't other times, but those guys ended up testing the draft waters. And I just thought they were testing the waters because they were capitalizing on some really high stock. They were playing at such a high level. So for me, that Creighton team had, had every piece and part um, imaginable. And just the way they were clicking on the offensive end of the floor, that team could have made, you know, a very deep run. Uh, that's why this one felt so right. It felt like a year later than it should have been. Yeah. But they accomplished that goal. They grinded towards that goal. Denzel and DJ also had a little bit less on their shoulders that year because Tyshawn was on the team. He was also another great leader for them. And, you know, shouts out to Tyshawn. He scored his first NBA points the other day. So yes, uh, from one Creightonian to another, congratulations to you, brother. Hopefully that's just the first of many to come. <laughs> well, and you know what? Um, I'm remiss there. I, I, I need to bring him up. Let's talk about him. Mm -hmm. Tyshawn Tyshawn Alexander was the best defensive player in the Big East in 2019-20. He was. He was. And you know what it is? I just, I just committed a, a Creighton sin, if you will, um, mm -hmm. by, by not naming him. Uh, because this, the last 12 months has felt like the last, like it's taken, it's felt like three years. Yeah. That his impact on the program cannot be overstated. Tyshawn mm -hmm. Alexander shut down Miles Powell. Tyshawn Alexander shut down Marcus Howard. You just don't do that. He was playing like an NBA defender. And that's why, Johns, that's why Creighton could have made a very deep run. Like, you combine Zagorowski, Ballock, Jefferson, Mahoney, Bishop with an elite-level guard in Tyshawn Alexander, who's an elite catch-and-shoot artist, who's going to get stops, he set the tone defensively to Creighton, a tone that we had not seen them take on since they joined the Big East. It's just the truth because that's how good Alexander was on defense. So I thought that they were a nightmare matchup. I think that last year's team probably had a better shot than this year's team to make a really deep run because of just how well Alexander was playing. So that, to answer your question again, that team could have made the Elite Eight because that's how much I respect Tyshawn Alexander. The Jays kind of missed Tyshawn in a few games this year where, you know, we saw the book night game uh, when they were at UConn and book night lost his line. I think he almost dropped 40. If, if not, I think he actually did. Oh yeah. He had 40. They, in his first big yeah. East game. yeah. And then also Champagne of St. John's kind of had their way with the Jays too, even though the Jays were able to pull out both those victories, but he was very impressive against them. So people kind of forget how good of a, that would have been Tyshawn's assignment for both those guys uh had he still been in a jays uniform but obviously you know it's a year later he moved on to, to bigger and better things and you know we can only kind of uh uh you know kind of think about it in hindsight from from this standpoint but yeah the the loss of tyshawn was was a tough one for the jays as well i'll give you three other games the game at kansas if tyshawn alexander plays the game at kansas creighton wins that game yeah it and it is we don't need to rely on a missed free throw from Zagorowski at the end either. Yeah. The home game against Marquette, you know, Marquette really took off from three point land. Yeah. Maybe Tyshawn Alexander gets some perimeter defense there, shuts down one of those shooters for Marquette and allows Creighton to defend a little bit better. Uh, another one, the home, the home loss to Georgetown, Tyshawn Alexander would have been on Javon Blair and Javon Blair was fantastic at Creighton this past yeah. season. So those are a couple he would have made a huge difference. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm glad you just brought up Georgetown. Since you're a Big East connoisseur and an aficionado, uh, what was the most surprising Big East team for you this year? Wow. Well, look, the most surprising event was Georgetown winning the Big East tournament. I mean, yeah. that was shocking, <laughs> shocking in so many ways. That team was picked at the bottom of the Big East. They were the, they were the biggest surprise. You're talking about Patrick Ewing with a roster that just on paper, Johans, that was not a Big East caliber roster. It wasn't. They had a lot of, yeah. they had a kid from Northwestern State, Chudier Belay. They had a true freshman, Dante Harris, running the point. They've got Donald Carey who transfers in. Like you're talking about a bunch of random pieces and parts. And Jamarco Pickett and Javon Blair, who good players, but not all Big East type players. It didn't matter. You know, they just, they outgrinded everybody. And to that point, like Kudus Wahab was a beast for Georgetown down the stretch. 
Then he transfers to Maryland. I'm still scratching my head at the fact that he transferred from Georgetown to Maryland because I thought he was on a great trajectory at Georgetown. doesn't mean that he can't be at Maryland too, but to go so close to the Hoyas was something that, that I'm still surprised by. But they were the biggest surprise to me because of that Big East tournament run. The other surprise was St. John's. You know, they were picked ninth in the Big East and Champagny took off. I think Cham- Julian Champagny had even better of a year than we all thought he would have had. Because it's hard to be a stretch four and score the ball as well as he did, where he was averaging 20 points per game. And you compile that with freshman point guard Posh Alexander, man, they make a scary duo going forward. The Johnnies will not be a surprise next season. Yeah, they've had a lot of kids transfer out of the program, but they're targeting some high-level transfers. In fact, I can tell you that in the last couple of days, I've been very intrigued by a couple of the names I've heard, one of which has not even formally entered the transfer portal, but is fielding a lot of options and could be a huge add, not only for St. John's, but for the Big East. I think the Red Storm could be dancing next season. I agree with you that Georgetown was probably the biggest surprise. As much as it hurts my poor little crane heart to admit it, they actually put an absolute whooping on us, which, you know, after the first, second media timeout, you're like, it's going to be a close game. And then the Hoyas just exploded and literally went on an incredible run. The Jays just had no answers for them. I really thought it was going to be the first time that we win a, a Big East tournament championship and those hopes vanished within an eight-minute span. So, you know, big shouts out to, you know, Coach Ewing obviously over there for, like you said, uh, I guess a, a group of misfit parts and, and he kind of found a way to, to put them all together when the moment was big and when the moment was right uh, in order to clinch that Big East tournament championship, which, you know, without that, they don't make it to the tournament, in my opinion. So uh, they were the fourth team dancing in the Big East because of that. And they deserve to be, you know, the most surprising team at the very least. It, it, it was an incredible run that they went on. It really was. And, you know, it, it's, <laughs> It was not a great year for the Big East. It was a bit of a down year. When you lose Marcus Howard, Tyshawn Alexander, Miles Powell, Kamar Baldwin, who was a killer at Butler, you know, you lose a lot of top-level stars, so you're a lot younger and you got to retool. I think we'll see the Big East be better next year uh, than it was this past year just by virtue of more experience and more continuity in some regard. Butler's going to bring everybody back. Seton Hall's added to their roster. Creighton, we'll see. Like they, Creighton's going to have some questions to answer. I'm really intrigued to see what Rati Andronikashvili brings to the program after suffering a season-ending injury very, very early in his mm-hmm. career. Didn't get a chance to play in a game, but I had I had heard so many good things. Yeah, th- those guys are really going to have to, you know, they're going to have their chances for sure because of the guys that Creighton is projected to lose. Uh, so, you know, next year is it's kind of their team uh, if they want it to be. It depends, obviously, how well they do in preseason workouts and all this stuff, how coaches evaluate evaluate them and, and continue to, you know, work them into the program. So it's going to be very interesting to see those guys who weren't able to, you know, be in a Jays uniform this year, how they're going to fare next year. I have a uh, very important question for you. As a Creighton fan, as a former player, Villanova has always been kind of that team. They're, they're the cream of the crop in the Big East. Like, let's not make uh, any bones about it. That's who they are. Uh, but we just announced, or we saw the announcement of uh, Robinson Earl this morning going to the NBA. Obviously, we uh, Gillespie, uh, and you know some of those guys will not be around anymore. So, uh, what's your take on Villanova? How good will they be again? And obviously, a, a Jay Wright led program is nothing to sniff at, on no matter what year is, no matter what the circumstances. So, what's your take on Villanova, and uh, what do you think they're going to look like next year? Well, I think they're going to look younger, but they're going to look really, really good. And I expect, I expect Colin Gillespie to be back for Villanova next season. I think he's going to come back and I think he'll be the Cats leader. He suffered that MCL injury. He's in the process of recovering. I think he's an amazing college player and I expect him to come back for Villanova next season. I think when you pair him up with Justin Moore uh, and Brandon Slater, you know, like for me, Villanova's going to have some questions to answer and losing Robinson Earl is tough, but Johans, this is still a Villanova program that has a top 10 recruiting class in the country coming in. Trey Patterson among the headliners. They've got other guys that are going to be able to really, really add. They're going to be younger, 
But if Gillespie's back and you still have some main pieces around him, I still am going to sit here and believe, look, Samuels and Robinson Earl, those are big losses. Um, but I still believe that Villanova is going to be the team to beat in the Big East. Because if you pair, if you tell me I get to have a fifth-year point guard surrounded by these pieces, I expect the point guard to make those pieces better. It's kind of the scenario if Zagorowski comes back to Creighton because Creighton will be a little bit different. They'll be younger, but you're counting on that veteran point guard to make those other pieces around him better. So I think there's some similarities there, but I still think it's Villanova's league to lose. Like it's their league until someone takes it from them. And if you look at who they got coming in, they got Jay Wright's got his best recruiting class since he took over coming in. Now, Villanova freshmen have not always panned out. Winterly being a recent one, Brian Antoine, we're waiting for Brian Antoine to break out of his shell. You know, he's been injured. He's had, you know, it's been hard to learn the system, all those different things. But man, I still, I'm not going to bet against Villanova. I'm not doing that. I always thought that, you know, historically, some of Jay Wright's best teams always had a handful of juniors, a handful of seniors and some younger guys plugged in there, you know, as, you know, uh, spark plugs off the bench and guys who have tremendous talent, obviously, but there's a specific way that he coaches those guys up and, you know, gets them to play so that they could be right uh, when it comes to tournament time. Uh, would you say that obviously next year with their um, class coming in, it's, it's, a, it's a great one coming in, that still that team is going to need some time to kind of develop into, you know, how Jay Wright wants them to play in order for them to really be successful? Oh, there's no question about it. They're going to take time. They're not going to be in a, in a great spot to start the season. In fact, a couple of years ago, they lost an, uh, a, a game in the second weekend, the second week of the season to Furman. Remember that? They lost to Furman like, like early on in the season. Everybody's like, what's wrong with Villanova? Nothing's right. wrong. It's just they take time. Teams take time to develop. If you're developing a hot take on a team in November, your chances are that hot take's going to go away yeah. quickly. It's, it's such a fluid time in the sport. Your rotation in November is not going to be what your rotation is in January by virtue of injuries, by virtue of your finding out who you are, by virtue of some kids check out, you know, and, and it's like you, as a coach, you got to find your best six guys or seven guys. So like for me, I, I think Villanova will take some time, but man, if that team has Gillespie back, they're not going to need much time. They aren't because that's how much respect I have for that kid. He, he is a really tough kid. I definitely want to ask you this question because you've watched so much basketball from all the teams in the Big East this year. It's been such an unusual year with, you know, the beginning of uh, starting off the year off with all the COVID restrictions, the kids not really having as much, you know, freedom off the court as a typical college student would. Um, in your opinion, you know, from the outside looking at how much did uh, COVID affect this season? Obviously the product on the court, but as well as like just the student athletes in general who just had to go through it uh, and really had to limit themselves and, you know, their circle throughout this year. Well, it's why we have so many transfers. It's part of the reason why, you know, <laughs> kids didn't get to experience their college campus at all. And when you're in lockdown, you're quarantined away from everybody, of course it affects you mentally. Of course it affects you physically. Kids not being able to condition to the, the lengths that they could normally condition. And, and what it does is it really impacts player development. You know, you're not able to get in with a player as a coach and work with him as often, especially over the course of last offseason. Like I thought there were a lot of younger players who suffered because they didn't get an offseason of development. And I thought it showed, you know, I, I really did. I thought it showed in a variety of ways. Think of what Christian Bishop could have been with an with a full off season under his head coach. He was a damn good player. He might've been the best big man, one of the best bigs in the country uh, had he had a full off season. I'm serious. Like that's how well he was playing. Uh, I, I think like I look around the big East and Steve Wojciechowski loses Marcus Howard. And when you lose a player as good as Marcus Howard, how do you kind of reinvent yourselves? Well, Giants, the, the first time he got to start to – first chance he got to reinvent themselves was in September. That's not right. enough time. That's not enough time. And now Steve Wojciechowski is looking for a job. You know, mm -hmm. like that's, that's what ended up happening. Um, 
Tyree Samuel at Seton Hall. You know, the, there, there are plenty of cases of guys who maybe didn't get a chance to develop. Kiki Tandy at Xavier, I thought he was a pretty good guard. Now he transfers on the program. It didn't end up working out. Butler was a young team. They didn't get a chance, you know, to really uh, blossom until they got together in October. So that's just that's just part of the it's part of the situation. It's part of the times, uh, and I think that the, all those things contributed to to kind of a weird truncated season with a lot of interruptions. The Big East took COVID more seriously than other conferences. Did the Big East team suffer, like, from a basketball standpoint, potentially? Well, yeah, but the pandemic was more important than, than basketball wins and losses, and, and right. you've got to preserve health and safety. But I do think it stunted certain teams' growth. It had a massive impact on how this season went. Christian Bishop arguably, arguably hit two of the biggest free throws in Korean history to, you know, stave off that uh, UC Santa Barbara game that went down to the wire in the NCAA tournament and now he's in the transfer portal you just mentioned how you know a lot of kids like this is a record number of how many kids are in the transfer portal looking for new homes how is that going to affect you know the NCAA in general and do you see this trend of you know kids uh, transferring in and out of programs you see it continuing to rise as the years, you know, go on, or you think at some point, you know, it's going to plateau and start to, you know, go down and we'll have more of a traditional college basketball atmosphere, like, you know, some of the good old days. I don't think that it will continue to rise to the level that it's risen here this offseason. I think COVID-19, I think the fact that certain kids can come back, well, not certain, everybody could use next year as a year of eligibility because this year didn't count. I think there's a lot of variables to this offseason as to why we're seeing a high number of transfers. Let me say this. Freedom of movement for any kid should be allowed. Any kid should be able to transfer wherever he wants, when he wants, and not have to sit out a year. The sit-out year is dumb. It's dumb. What I would say is, and again, I will reiterate, you should be allowed to go wherever, whenever. You played, though. You know that there is something to be said about continuity in life. And that when you're thinking about that very crucial decision of where your next stop is or what your next plan is, if there's something that you can overcome at your first school and it's realistic for you to be in control of it, to get better, and to potentially blossom for your coach, I think that that's better potentially than saying I'm going to head to a new stop where they might sell you on one thing, but just like your first school mean another. So for me, like, I think it's totally fine that the freedom of movement's happening. What I look at is though, is this going to impact the quality of basketball? Yes, it is. It is. We're all still going to watch it. We're going to love it, but there's so much movement in the sport right now. I don't know how, how all these teams are going to look like they're totally connected, totally sound as next season goes on, because there's just so much movement. There's so many new pieces and parts rotating around. So I think you can both say that a player should be allowed to transfer wherever he wants and not have to sit out a year while also saying that does college basketball's quality take a hit? Of course it does. When you change to the level that you're changing right now as a sport, when a third of the sports kids are, are moving around, of course things are going to look very different and potentially get impacted negatively. That's not to take away from making the transfer decision. Every kid's empowered and has the right to do so. But I think as a player, and I'm a 25-year-old, I'm not an old guy that's been covering the sport for a long time, and so I, I look at it this way. Like if I'm a kid, and if there's something that I can get better at and I trust my coach, I'm staying with it. I'm staying with the program. That trust is very important. Never has it been more important. These coaches got to adapt now, John Hens, because here's the thing. This is, this is my scenario. If, you, if you're a coach and you recruit a freshman and you make a promise to him that you're going to play him, what happens then if, he does, if that promise doesn't get lived up to? The, player, the freshman's gone. He doesn't have to wait around for a year. You don't have that that sit out you're hanging over your head like 
oh, that's the con to transferring. No, there is no con. Yeah. But by the same token, what about keeping your juniors and seniors happy? If you're playing freshmen, that doesn't always equal wins. It does not right. always equal wins in college basketball. Playing juniors and seniors typically does. It's it's such a crazy topic because just like you, I, I kind of think about, you know, what is the reason that these kids are transferring? Like, why is it such a high rate of transfers, especially in this day and age? I can't help but think that, you know, sometimes kids just, I mean, I, I hate to sound like this guy, because like, I look, if you want to leave for whatever reason, it, it's totally on you. But I think there's something to be said about competing for your spot, like wanting to stay there and battle and prove to not only the coach itself, but to yourself that you belong on the floor, you know, that you're going to get better, that these things that they've told you that, you know, you need to work on, you've actually put in some time in the options to work on it and, and to earn your spot on the floor. I think there is a little bit of that missing. But again, there's there's just so many different reasons as to why people are transferring that I can't generalize it based on that alone. But I do sometimes kind of wish that, you know, kids would think better of it. But in the same token, I mean, this Korean program has benefited, uh, benefited greatly uh, from transfers. Denzel was a transfer. DJ was a transfer. Guys like that have met a lot to the program and they've come in and they've bought in to the program as well. So I definitely see the pro and the con of transferring. But sometimes I just kind of wish that, you know, kids who make that decision and mind you, kids are young when they're making that decision. When I was 17, 18, deciding to come to Korea, and I thought I knew everything about the world too. <laughs> but, you know, later you come to find out that there's so much more to, to learn and, and so much more room to grow. And then I leave Korea realizing I didn't know anything when I first stepped foot on campus. So it's kind of funny how that goes. But I do think that, you know, as far as like this rate of transfers, something needs to kind of be done to limit that a little bit. And, you know, part of it might actually just be, you know, the coaches getting a better grasp of the student athletes that yep. they're recruiting and, and accepting into their, their program and into their culture. Yeah. And I also think that like coaches are recruiting in the layup lines, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In the layup lines. you know, Al Durham transfers from Indiana to Providence <laughs> because Al Durham beat the hell out of Ed Cooley in Providence at the Maui Invitational in Asheville, North Carolina. So Ed Cooley says, I want Al Durham on my team. Let me let me do what I can to get him. And I credit them for doing that. I mean, if yeah. I'm a coach, I do the same thing under the legality, under the legal umbrella. But I do think that tampering still happens. I'm not suggesting that, that the past example that I just listed is that. I do think that mm -hmm. there has to be a crackdown on what's happening in the recruiting realm. What's being promised in the recruiting realm? You know, when you can transfer anywhere and you don't have to sit out as a kid, you love getting recruited, you know, it makes you feel wanted. It makes you feel fluffy. And, and I'm the same way. Like it makes you feel happy, but by the same token, what you don't want is for the recruiting to end up doing things that it's not supposed to be doing. And that that's where I get concerned about the transfer rule is I do think that there has to be more monitoring of what's happening and of, of tampering and of different things because, you know, look, coaches got to adapt. But what I do fear is this going into so much of a world of who's going where and who am I going to get that then what happens is it becomes more about that than it does what's actually happening on the court in the now. You might start recruiting for next year. You're always recruiting, but what I'm saying is – you might, Always start, recruiting. you might start basically counting out a kid, not giving him a chance and saying, uh, -uh I want to replace him with this guy. I don't know if I love that. You know, I don't know if I, if I like the idea of that taking over as opposed to from a coach's perspective, try to hone in on that relationship with the kid, see if the kid can come back and see if the kid could get better under you. I think it's going to lead more coaches too, to saying, you know what? He doesn't want to be here. Forget it. I'll get rid of him and I'm going to get this kid instead. Let me start recruiting him right now. You don't want to run it. You like, for me, that's where things got to get monitored more. Cause these, these kids are getting recruited before they enter the portal. We know what's happening. Yeah. We're not dumb. You said that coaches are recruiting kids from the layup line. I thought that was a very interesting perspective. <laughs> kind of go in a little bit, like give me more of what that idea is. Like, what do you mean when you say that? Well, whether it be trash talking game or just talking as well, these coaches are out on the floor watching these other players warm up. There's conversations happening. There's right. conversations <laughs> happening, whether it's in the handshake line, 
whether it's in the back hallway, if it's had a, a, a you know scrimmage, and they get if it's not them reaching out to the player, they get one of their assistants to kind of say something. But I think it happens more than we even know. I really do. I, I think it happens all the time. And I think, you know, as a kid's kind of loosely stretching or warming up, that's a prime opportunity for somebody to go up and shake his hand under normal times and say, hey, you know, what's your vision? What's your goal? Or, you know, would you want to play here? I think I think it happens more than we will ever know. So I'm going to get into some of the fan questions that I asked on Twitter. Appreciate everybody for reaching out, kind of like wanting to get, uh, you know, some answers from you and from your perspective on uh, Crane for the following year. The first question comes from uh, Creighton Blue Jays, DJ's fan on Twitter. What do you think the lineup will look like next year? Maybe Nemhard, Mitchell, O'Connell, Jones, Brenner, Miller. Don't forget Rati as well. So what do you think, you know, we're, we're assuming in this situation, obviously, that Zagorowski doesn't come back. We obviously know Denzel won't. He announced that he uh, isn't going to. I'm assuming also that uh, Mitch and DJ aren't coming back as well. So uh, what, what do you think of that lineup? And what do you think, you know, to go a little bit further into that question, what do you think Crane's strength will be next year? Well, great question. Um, you know, their, their strength's going to have to start with, it's going to have to start with Ryan Nemhard if, if Zegarowski's not coming back and the strength's going to have to start with a guy who comes in as a four-star recruit and it's going to be on him. And then what is Mason Miller's versatility on the floor? Look, the, the strength of this team lies in their youth. You know, that's just how it is. It's going to lie in their youth. Um, they're going to need to see Jones and O'Connell try to take the next step respectively with more minutes sometimes means the next step. But for me, Giants play the kids, play the freshmen, the strengths going to lie in what they do. And I expect Kalkbrenner to take the next step. And I think one strength that kind of is the X factor to this whole equation is Rati Andronikashvili's health. Like, is he the kid that they think he could be? I've heard really good things about his skill set. I'm really intrigued to see how versatile he is. He obviously provides a, you know, a, an interesting dimension to them. And I've, I've heard that he's somebody who has pace to his game, who fits the Creighton style and was really shining in practice. But for me, like you got to play the kids, Ryan Nemhard and, and Mason Miller should be starting. And I would start Kalkbrenner at the five. Um, you know, if it's O'Connell Jones, we'll see. But the strength has to lie in the youth of this team. The fact is, and, and you know what? You're going to get a transfer too. You're going you're gonna to be able, like, the starting lineup is going to change because I think Creighton will get somebody at the two or the three that bolsters up their shooting capabilities. But the strength of this team has to lie in, in the youth. Miller and Nemhart, I would play them. I would play through the, the lows to get to the highs as their careers go on. I don't think anyone is going to benefit as much as Ryan Kalkbrenner did from that loss to Gonzaga, because I think it was an absolute wake up call for him. Uh, just the way that, uh, why am I blanking on Timmy had his way with him on pick and roll situation, even in some post up situations where, you know, Kalkbrenner had the height advantage on him, but not the strength, not the wisdom, you know, not the savvy that Timmy had. So I think when he looks back on that tape, if he ever does, he'll kind of see the weaknesses that was exposed uh, during that matchup. And I think it's going to motivate him to get into the gym and work on those things, not only defensively, but offensively too, where a couple of times he got stripped uh, when he was right at the rim or, you know, he didn't you know, finish the bucket the way that he should have with a strong finish as opposed to going up with some finesse. So I'm very interested in seeing his development this summer. You know, I'm not sure if I'll have a chance to come up to Omaha to see it in person, but obviously the proof is in the pudding and we'll be able to see it when it's game time uh, next November. Uh, in your opinion, a guy like Kalkbrenner, I, I just kind of mentioned on some of the stuff that I believe he should be working on, but what do you think he's going to have to be doing this summer to really, you know, uh, hit that next level and, and be that true caliber starting five that we all feel he has the potential to be. Hit the weight room, bulk up, hit the weight. <laughs> yeah, bulk up, and work on his footwork. <laughs> you know, work on a lot of the technique, some of the the ball thing, that that footwork, the hesitation, the timing. 
his timing was a little bit off offensively. And then from a defensive perspective, hit that weight room, you know, become a more physical player up here. He's got to do that to be able to battle with Nate Watson, to be able to battle with Ike Obiagu in the Big East. You got to be able to build your body up. I expect him to hit the weight room and work on some of those little things, that footwork, that technique, and become a better passer. When you're creating big, you got to be able to pass the basketball. Why? There's an open shooter somewhere. If you get it down that far down low, you got to be able to find that oppo pass, that skip pass, or just to pass back out. If you're Ryan Kaufman or some of the little things and build that body up in the weight room. Uh, so, John, we already kind of talked about this, but a fan, uh, Joey Walter on Twitter, talked about or asked, I'm sorry, with the emergence of the transfer portal, how aggressive should we be on landing a high quality transfer? I think you already kind of talked about that. You're expecting the Jays to kind of be, you know, on the lookout for a key transfer. His next question is, uh, do you think our primary focus should be on developing and getting our young guys that we already have coming in uh, to have some more minutes, which I feel like you kind of touched on too. Well, you, you might have to lose some games next year to win some in two or three years. You know, mm-hmm. you might have to go through some growing pains, but I would play Miller and Nemhard right off the bat and go through those different things. Now, if Zagorowski comes back, he's the caliber of point guard with a high-level transfer at the wing that keeps you competitive and that keeps you as one of the top teams in the Big East. That's how mm-hmm. good Marcus Zagorowski is. So I think it really is dependent on what his decision is, but you got to play the kids. you got to play the youth of your program, and I think you might have to lose some games next year to, to really continue to build that program and to win in 2022, in 2023, and so on. John Fanta, I want to say thank you for stepping into the J with me. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. You're welcome into the J anytime, honestly. Honestly, it was so refreshing to hear from you and your perspective. And obviously giving us, J Spence, some high hopes for the future, as well as, you know, obviously giving us some of your knowledge of Biggie's basketball. So thank you so much, brother. Johans, anytime, my friend. Always good to be inside the J with you, and hopefully we spend some time in Omaha in the not-so-distant future. Congrats on the podcast. I'm happy to join you anytime. Appreciate you, brother. Again, everybody, don't forget to like and subscribe to the Field of 68 Media Network, and also don't forget to download the Locker Room app. We have some content on there as well. John, thank you so much. Take care, stay safe, and as always, go Jays. (laughs) 